7, verses 1 through 8. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with others, deal with each other justly. If you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. And now we're going to go to John chapter 2, verses 13 to 26. Get the pages apart. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume you. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. May God bless the reading of and the hearing of his word. Good morning. How's everybody? Oh, it's a frosty cold morning today, huh? Yeah, I didn't want to get out of bed. Um, I've been having wardrobe problems today. My sweater and my dress are not working well together. So I, I don't mind me a minute while I check and make sure I'm okay. Oh, my. Oh, my mirror is not so clean. I'm having a hard time seeing myself in it. Hmm. That ever happened to you? Yeah. Yeah, can't, oh, do I really look like that? Oh, my. I hope not, because there's an awful lot of spots on that mirror. Um, and I think, when I was thinking about the Jeremiah passage, where it talks about things being a little cloudy, is it, did he say that word, or was that my imagination? Um, yeah, he doesn't actually use the word cloudy, but... That's the image I got, was that it was kind of cloudy, what people were thinking about God, and their understanding of God was becoming very cloudy, because somebody say, well, this is the temple, 
No, this is the temple. Nope, nope, this is the temple. And nobody knew what the temple was. Well, the good thing is, I don't have to throw my mirror away just because it's dirty. I can fix that. And Jeremiah said, you can fix this too. So I brought some stuff to fix my, my mirror here. I have some glass cleaner. I think if I spray the glass cleaner on there, it should help, right? Oh, better turn it on first. There we go. I turned it off so it wouldn't ugh, make a mess. All right, so let's see. Oh, hey, it's working. It's getting better. Yeah, much better. Let's try this side. Hmm. So what can we do about our cloudy image of God? Hmm. What can we do? Clean it. Clean God? Okay, God, wait a minute. There's a spot. Wait. Uh, uh. Clean up our image. Yes. Because we know that we are made in the image of God. And what we see in the mirror should reflect God. Boy, this is really a dirty mirror. It's much better now. Yeah? So when we look in the mirror, we should be able to see a clear image of God. Not one that's distorted by false teachings or desires that are not godly, but rather than spray ourselves with window cleaner, what can we do? Yes, and we're all here today to worship, and I think that's probably the best thing we can be doing, because when we come to worship, we come into the presence of God, we allow his spirit to fill us, to wash us from the inside out, and then fill us with his word, through scripture, through singing, through prayer, through fellowship with each other. And all of that takes all of that cloudy dirtiness away from our image so that we can reflect God to everyone we meet. And they won't be seeing through a cloudy mess of, oh, well, this is what's important. Or no, this is more important. God is what's most important and his love for us and our worship to him is so pleasing that that's what we need to be doing. When things get a little cloudy, don't forget, worship. There's lots of times when we think, oh, I can't make it through this. But if we worship during those times, we will definitely get through it. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that coming to you will clean away all those cloudy issues. Coming to you to worship so that we can reflect you to each person we meet. Help us to keep ourselves clear of distractions, clear of all those things that crowd us out, busyness, greed, all kinds of evil thoughts. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you in no matter what condition we are, and you will help us clean with your spirit inside and your word, and your worship. So we give this day to you. We give our lives to you. Clean us up, Lord, so that we can be good images for you. In Jesus' name, amen.
God is worthy. So let's pray together again. Lord, thank you for today and for this word, your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Please help us to see and hear clearly. Help me to speak clearly. Please um, transform us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we were talking on Zoom because the weather was, well, you know. And Paul said, I asked the question, what's the, what is the biblical idea of temple? What's it for? And Paul said, it's a place for God and us to hang out. Nice job, man. Um, <laughs> that is correct. So now I have a question. Why, based on everything we've been talking about the last few weeks, what is the point of God and us hanging out? What does, why does God want to hang out with us? What's, the, what's his intent? Right. Yes, we are God's family. Yeah, it's where, that, that's a great tie-in to Barb's sermon. Um, it's where he helps us clean up our mirror. For what? Yes, so we reflect God better. We saw some hints about what that could look like in our responsive reading, actually, from Isaiah 56. Um, part of what we've been talking about, how God created people to be in a relationship with people to then go out into the rest of creation and bring God's loving order into the chaos that's around us. So God created order out of chaos, but God wanted us to partner with him in this project. And so he didn't just make everything all done right at the beginning. He wanted us to be part of this work. And we kind of screwed that up because we thought we could be God. We could reflect God without actually being in relationship with God. That's sort of the human story. And so when we get to passages like Isaiah, um, Isaiah 56, we see God is saying, do, do good things, and he talks about two groups of people in that passage who were, for the Jewish people, both social outcasts and temple outcasts. Um, they, there was, to the Jewish people's mind, something wrong with both of these groups of people. And even in the Old Testament law that came from God, there are places where it's, it's indicated that these groups of people shouldn't come in, shouldn't try to get too close to God. They shouldn't come into the temple. But what was happening was a lot of things. But <laughs> one of the things that was happening in relation to these two groups of people is that they were being um, discriminated against in other ways, and they were being mistreated. These two groups in this particular passage are foreigners, and what we might today call sexual minorities. Um, we talk about strange things in this church. I'm really happy we have visitors here today. Sorry about the weirdness of this, <laughs> of this topic for a minute. We're not going to stay here. But um, So in the, in the Bible times, a sexual minority was usually somebody who had a male who had been mutilated. And there were specific laws that you couldn't be, you couldn't be disabled and you couldn't have mutilation and you couldn't have any of these things if you wanted to come into God's presence. And 
so this passage in Isaiah might have been a little surprising to the people who were hearing it for the first time. Because it sounds like God is saying, these people that you have been keeping out of my presence, they can come in. So let's be clear. This passage is not saying anything goes, okay, now everybody can come into the temple, no matter what they're doing or who they are. That's fine. Just everybody come in because God loves everybody. Yes, God loves everybody. This isn't anything goes. People who come into the temple are not supposed to bring in immorality or additional loyalty, other idols um, from their life that they experienced before seeking God. This, this passage is really clear. God says the people, the foreigners and the eunuchs can come in, the ones who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant and who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. In verse 8 of that passage, God says, which is after the reading, God says, I will gather still others to them because besides those already gathered. God wants everybody to come into his temple on the basis of their loyalty and commitment and turning their whole lives over to him. Because he is love and we were created in his image, and if we do that, we can reflect his image better to the world. It's this kind of circle that um, once you can get in it, just keeps going. Here's something to note when we think about this, though. We tend, I think, in America in general, but um, Christians tend to think that we, when we read passages like this, we put ourselves in the place of the Jews or the Israelites. We think this is a message to us, we need to remember that we need to let in foreigners and we need to let in people that have maybe been on the margins, um, but we're actually the foreigners, you guys. Is there anybody? There might be some people with Jewish backgrounds here. Yeah, but that's not the majority. Most of us are in this passage, but we're the foreigners. We should not forget that. We can't take for granted how important this is for people like us. God wants the foreigners to come in. That's us. Here's something else to pay attention to, though. The restrictions that are included in this passage about choosing what pleases God and holding fast to God and God's covenant of ministering to God, those restrictions for foreigners and eunuchs are not any different from the restrictions required for the people of God already. These are part of the law. This was given to the Jewish people. They were supposed to be living like this already. It is a description of what all the people of God are supposed to be like and how God's great idea of temple, the overlap of heavens and earth, or hanging out with each other, with God, humans and God hanging out, is supposed to work all along. What is surprising and remarkable about passages like this Isaiah one is that people like us get to be included in this, not just the Jewish people. However, immediately after this passage that we read responsively, in Isaiah 56, God calls on wild animals to come and devour, not the unworthy foreigners or eunuchs, but the watchmen, and the shepherds of Israel. So this is serious. 
the things that enable us to be with God, to connect with God, for the heavens and the earth to overlap, are important. And if the people who were originally called by God or the people who come into the family of God are not living like God wants us to and are not representing him clearly to the world, like Barb's analogy showed us, there are consequences to that. We'll get back to that. But let's go back to last week a little bit for a minute. We talked about Solomon's temple. Can anyone recap briefly for me what was what what happened at Solomon's temple last week? It was a small group. What's that? No, not last week. <laughs> Eventually, we're going to get there, but... Yes, so Solomon built the temple with items that had been stored by his father David for the temple. And what we read last week was Solomon the temple's completed and Solomon calls all of the leaders of the people and all of the people and they sacrifice more sacrifices than could be counted, which is saying something because the Bible usually likes to put numbers on things. Um, and Solomon prays this amazing prayer. And his prayer outlines, it's really long, but it outlines all of the things that God actually wanted for this, his relationship with people. And he talks about how, you know, he actually prays about foreigners coming into the temple. And, like, if they come and they pray to you and they, and they obey your laws... Hear their prayers too, not just ours. And if we sin and we end up getting sent away because we've sinned and we repent, please hear our prayers and call us back. And so it's a beautiful prayer, and God was honored by that prayer and was honored by the gift, and God showed up in the passage we looked at last week. God actually filled the temple with smoke or clouds or light or something, and... Um, there was so much of God's glory in the temple that the priests couldn't even get in there to do their work because God was so happy with this gift. God accepted the gift, and God called it my house. Even if it wasn't God's idea originally, um, he accepted this gift. But then, as David indicated, things got a little sketchy. Starting with Solomon, actually. Solomon ended up, he's famous for having way too many wives and concubines, and why that, one of the reasons that was a problem, I can think of a few, but one of the reasons was that these women were from, were foreigners, but they were not foreigners who had um, joined to God, who had committed themselves to God. They retained their allegiances to their idols, and Solomon got sidetracked by that. And things went from bad to worse, and the people of God the people of Israel split. So there was now the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, or Ephraim. Sometimes Israel is referred to as Ephraim and Judah. So much for the holy people of God drawing people into the presence of God. They split. It's like the opposite of what is supposed to happen here. 
the temple remained in Judah. And the people of Ephraim just kind of went from bad to worse. You can read about this in First and Second Kings. And every king that they mentioned from, from Ephraim did evil in the sight of the Lord. They might have actually been politically decent kings, some of them, but they did not have hearts that followed after God like David's did. And in Judah, they didn't do a whole lot better. There were a couple of kings who are said to have done good, what was good in the sight of the Lord. Usually, though, it says, but not like his father David, not like his ancestor David, except for a king named Josiah. So Isaiah, who we just talked about, prophesied before Josiah, and then Josiah somehow had a heart for God in spite of his ancestors, and um, he realized that there were some issues in the temple worship, and he did this huge, he had the priests do this huge clean-out, and they discovered the book of the law, which had apparently been lost for a while. That was probably part of the problem. And there was actually kind of a revival that happened when they discovered this book of the law. Uh, Josiah repented and said, we got to get right with God, you guys. And so they did. But then he, um, he actually made one false move and got killed in battle. And so when we get to the passage, the first of the two passages for today, Jeremiah, Jeremiah is right at the tail end of Josiah's reign and has to basically live through the reigns of three of his descendants um, and the people of Judah going into exile. But Jeremiah is supposed to prophesy, please, you guys, you can actually fix this. You don't have to go into exile, or you can go into exile later. His, his message has to change because the people aren't listening to him. Go into exile. It's okay. Just do what God wants. And... So he ends up having to watch, nobody listens to him. He has to watch the exile of his people, of God's people, happen in slow motion. And, well, no one listens to him. And the temple gets destroyed. And then in our second passage, the John passage, we've read that passage a million times together. <laughs> it illustrates a lot of things really well, so I guess... That we just keep coming back there. But by the time of the Apostle John and by the time of Jesus and that story, Solomon's temple had been destroyed centuries before, and the second temple had been built, and then that kind of fell into disrepair, and then King Herod built it back up again and made it all glorious and beautiful, and it was famous for how gorgeous it was. And the Judeans, the whole time, had been ruled over by various other nations. The free people of God were no longer free. They had not been free since the time of Jeremiah. So, let's look at this Jeremiah passage first. There's a few things we can ask ourselves about this. Who, or where, who, what. And the where is, verses 1 and 2, it says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim his message. So where is Jeremiah? At the house of the Lord. He is right outside, standing in the gate of the house of the Lord, and he is prophesying to the people. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. 
This is the who. To whom is Jeremiah prophesying? The faithful churchgoers. These are not people who were just not going to church anymore, who had left, who were done. These are people who are coming to worship. They're the ones who are going to hear him because he's standing at the gate of the temple. These are the people of God. But what is his message to them? This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. In this place, in this passage, means the promised land. The promised land is the piece of earth that God chose after Eden to be kind of the the bigger temple, the place where he transformed a group of people back to reflect him better to the rest of the world so that his original plan to go out and and love the rest of creation into the order of God um, was supposed to happen again. And so we see this like continual cycle in the, in the Bible. There's chaos, and then God creates the world, and Eden. And then there's chaos, and then God chooses a people. And then there's chaos, the slavery of God's people in Egypt. And then God brings them to the promised land, that they, which was taken from people of chaos. The people in the promised land who were there were people who were doing things that were atrocious to God. And so they didn't get to stay in the land. God puts his people there. But there's the understanding from the beginning that if those people don't reflect God, they don't get to stay in the land either. The promised land is for people who are reflecting God. The promised land is the temple. And now there's chaos in the temple. What we do from our fellowship with God matters. We say this sometimes here, or you've probably heard it other places. Uh, being a Christian is more than Sunday morning, or worship is more than Sunday morning. It is. It was back before there were Christians and Sunday mornings, <laughs> and, um, and it is still. If we are not being transformed by our time here with each other and with God, if we're not listening to God and letting God change us, God doesn't like it, and there's not a whole lot he wants to do with us if we're not willing to be cleaned up like that mirror that Barb showed us. The temple is supposed to be where we hang out with God, not just to hang out with God, but so that we become more like God the rest of the time. So we bring God with us from here into the rest of our lives so that we fulfill God's promise and intention of temple to bring his love to other humans in the rest of the world. Verse 4, this sometimes goes through my head because you know that I'm not, I'm not only pastoring here, but I work with a group of people online. And a lot of those people have come from churches where there is abuse happening, either spiritual abuse or sexual abuse or other types of abuse. And so I think of this verse often. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
this is what was happening in Jeremiah's time. These people were doing whatever they wanted and coming into worship and singing and praying and whatever, however they worshiped and offering sacrifices even and feeling totally secure in whatever the nonsense they were engaged in during the week because they thought, this is the temple of the Lord. Nothing is going to happen to us. This place is special. This is where we come to meet with God. God would never let anything happen to this temple. But God did let something happen to that temple. And so in verses 5 to 8, Jeremiah says, if you really change your ways and your actions, deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. This, is, this stuff that Jeremiah is calling the people back to is everything that Solomon prayed in the prayer of dedication that we looked at last week. Justice among God's people, among the people of God to each other, caring for the people in the margins, and making God's name known among the peoples of the earth. Solomon even prayed about sin among the people that could bring national defeat and prayed for restoration. And Jeremiah is saying, here's your chance, guys. Sin is happening here, but you can turn around and and you can still live here. He's also saying, you're not living up to the terms of the covenant, of the temple. You are not demonstrating the overlap between the heavens and the earth. Where's the heavens? We're not seeing it in our lives. You know what happens when people do that? He says, they get evicted from the temple. This is the other cycle that we see in the Bible, Adam and Eve got evicted from Eden. The flood sort of evicted humans from creation, except for a very small group of people in that little boat. The pagans got evicted from Canaan. And eventually, the Judeans get evicted from Jerusalem. So now we turn to Jesus in the temple. If we look at this Jeremiah passage, the way I just described. What do you think this passage about Jesus that we're super familiar with has in common with the story of Jeremiah? Any thoughts? Who wanted this to be a house of prayer? Paul? Yes. They are repeating history. The people are repeating history. So now they have a temple, and they're doing the same thing. N.T. Wright, who I quote sometimes, because he listens to God, I think, and knows more about a lot of stuff than I do, um, he says about this similar story that's as it's reported in Luke. He says, Jesus is not simply mounting an angry protest about commercialization of temple business. His action is a solemn, prophetic warning, echoing those of Jeremiah and others, that if the temple becomes a hideout for brigands, robbers, literally or metaphorically, it will come under God's judgment. 
Now it appears the brigands are indeed running the show. Jesus is not so much concerned with the traders. They, to be sure, are doubtless making a few extra shekels on the side, but that's trivial compared to what the high priests and their entourage have been doing. In other words, injustice is being done in the temple again. But the buying and selling that's happening in the temple that Jesus upsets by turning over the tables is just the tip of the iceberg. It is just a symptom of the sin sickness that's back in the temple, which has trickled down from the leadership to the people. There are consequences of entering a covenant of temple, a covenant of fellowship with God, of the overlap of heavens and earth, and then living as if we or our nation or even our church by itself or our special heritage are what's important or what's in charge here. If we put ourselves, our immediate community, our nation, our ethnic background, whatever we want to use to identify ourselves, if we put that in place of God in our fellowship, there are consequences because the point of a covenant with God is it's us and God. It is the overlap of heaven and earth. If God blessed something in the past or gave us something in the past, but we stopped using it on his terms in the present, we cannot bank on his blessing us or it like in the past. There must be consequences for the people God has entrusted with his name if we misuse it by not reflecting his character. Misuse it, you lose it. That's basically the thing here. So I'm not saying that this is what we necessarily are doing here, but it is a danger that every single worshiping person and community can fall into. And sometimes we need to talk about it and think about it and consider that this cycle that we see of chaos and temple and chaos and temple and chaos and temple, we can get caught up in. And so it's important to remember if we misuse the blessings that God has given us, we can lose them. There are consequences. If we commit ourselves to the Lord, we are blessed and we are free and we are in relationship with God. But if we start to assume that this church has been here for 220 years, God's never going to do anything to, to damage that and don't live up to our relationship with God, well, we might have to, to think a little harder about that. We aren't the children of Israel, but a lot of times we tend to think that, for example, this nation is special to God. That might be true. If it's true, though, it's wise to consider our history, like the Israelites' history, evil in the sight of the Lord versus good in the sight of the Lord, and even the good things that we have made idols of. So after this story that happens with Jesus, the Judeans lose their temple again in AD 70. And it hasn't come back. Here in John 2 and in the other Gospels, God is in person, expressing his grief 
his frustration, his outright anger at how people who he loves have undone his plan to love chaos into order. Again and again and again and again. In Luke, he rampages through the temple. Before he rampages through the temple, Jesus actually weeps over Jerusalem because they have rejected him. He's weeping from their rejection. They have rejected him, and they have rejected, in rejecting him, they have rejected the God that they were covenanted to. This is God's response to anybody's sin and injustice and misrepresentation of him. And still, Jesus weeps, and he overthrows, he gets mad, he overthrows the temple, and then the temple leaders come to him and say, what authority do you have to do this? Well, maybe the authority of the one who invented the concept of temple in the first place. The difference between the John and the Jeremiah passages are, is Jesus. How God's people treat the temple is how God's people treat him. How God's people represent the temple is how God's people represent him. The people in the story of Jesus were living as if they had the authority, not as if God did. And so they didn't recognize God's authority when he stood there right in front of them. So, then, of course, they didn't understand him when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. But John tells us the temple he had spoken of was his body. Before the physical temple was destroyed the second time, the true temple, Jesus Christ, the complete and total overlap between God and humanity, was destroyed. Herod's temple, the building, got destroyed in A.D. 70, and it hasn't been rebuilt. But the true temple, Jesus' body, did get rebuilt in three days into the new body, the glorified body, the immortal body. And Jesus continues to perfectly represent creation, and especially humans, to God. And to completely, perfectly represent God Jesus took all the chaos that our species has ever dragged into the places where we and God are supposed to hang out, and he took all of it onto himself. In his once-for-all death and resurrection, he continues to love us back to life-giving service. Thanks be to God.